Today's episode of Grad School Confessional is brought to you by Twitter. Twitter has been instrumental for our podcast. Through engaging with Twitter, we've been able to get listeners for our podcast, followers for our memes, and make friends with fellow podcasters from across the world. The only thing we really haven't figured out yet is the word limit. You're listening to Grad School Confessional, a podcast that explores the good, bad, and ugly of graduate school, directly from graduate students themselves. I'm your host, Dr. Yoasway. From awkward supervisor interactions to reviewer two horror stories, to convincing your parents why grad school was a good idea, we read out the confessions of graduate students from all over and chat about the realities of pursuing higher education. I'd like to welcome back my co-host and OGMC, Anna. Anna's a PhD candidate studying digital health, a field where researchers ask, if you sell your organs on the digital black market, do you need to make an NFT for them? I I don't know nearly enough about NFTs to even begin answering that question. Do, do you? No, I, I honestly no. don't think anyone what is What is an NFT? I think it stands for no frickin' tax. Our episode today is also a special holiday crossover episode. We are very excited to introduce our guest hosts from another science podcast, The Struggling Scientist, Susanna Jaron. Hi. Hi. <laughs> Susanna Jaron are doing their PhDs at the University of Amsterdam in the Netherlands, where they study medical biochemistry, a field where researchers ask, if you weren't meant to eat Tide Pods, why do they make them in such delicious flavors? Flavors? I don't think any of them are flavored, right? Oh, no, they definitely are. They smell like spring meadow, but they taste like dying. Now, this episode is especially cool for us because we got to know Suzanne and Jaren through Twitter first as a fellow science podcast. Uh, for our listeners, perhaps you guys can briefly summarize what your podcast is all about. Um, you want me to do that, Jaren? Oh, sure. <laughs> yes. Um, so our podcast is really about, of course, our PhD experience, but also about just science topics that we find really interesting. As you said, we are biomedical scientists that are more in the biochemistry field, but sometimes our own research topics become a bit boring. <laughs> no, not necessarily boring, but just too much of the same thing. And then you just want to spread out into something else. So we use our podcast as a good excuse to look into different scientific topics and um, we also talk about our PhD experiences, of course, and we invite different uh, people to our podcast to talk about science and fun, fun, fun science. That's the main thing. We want to bring the fun back to, to the science experience. <laughs> like Bill Nye. <laughs> Bill Nye, that's science. Do you Wait, guys have Bill Nye? Do you guys know Bill Nye? We're, we're going to grow uh, grow to that at some point, hopefully. <laughs> okay, okay. They don't have Bill Nye. How did you even get into science? Well, I mean, I saw him on Discovery Channel, at least. Oh, okay. Okay, okay. Oh, my gosh. I almost had a heart yeah, attack. Jaron. You grew up in Aruba. Yeah, close to the U.S. and uh, Canada, I guess. So close enough. Oh, that wow. That's really cool. I, don't, I don't even know what you're talking about. Wait, seriously, Sen, you don't know who Bill Nye is? No. Boo, boo, boo. <laughs> I'm not explaining it. No, I'm not explaining it at all. <laughs> She's like the biggest hype man for Bill Nye right now. <laughs> um, yeah, so definitely listen to him. Like he's Bill Nye is this guy who was actually guy. a science guy, <laughs> but he would do cool experiments and explain like, nature and stuff to you in like a really accessible way and so all the kids got super into science because they just thought it was about pouring stuff into beakers and watching it explode mm -hmm. and then you realize in real life when that happens you're actually doing it wrong <laughs> but yeah bill and i basically got a generation of kids to buy into the dream of academia of <laughs> <laughs> science i think yeah, yeah. stem um, well, I guess we found our first difference between canada and the netherlands then yeah there you go <laughs> Uh, so a question for you guys. Where does the name struggling scientist come from? Actually, Jaron came up with it. We were trying to come up with something that sounded not too negative, but still somewhat negative. <laughs> Realistic is the word. Realistic. Oh, yeah, <laughs> well, I think the struggle is also part of the science. It always, it always is a struggle. <laughs> Otherwise, you're not doing it right. <laughs> Otherwise, other people would have already discovered it, you know? Yeah. The struggle is baked in. <laughs> the struggle is baked in. <laughs> uh, one of the super cool things about Suzanne and Jaren's podcast is that we've gotten to see their cast grow and our cast grow together, 
kind of like two kids in the same class in grade school, except your class is across the Atlantic and is also a completely different class from ours, which is also incidentally the topic of today's episode, which is differences between Canadian and European PhD experiences. Outside of Bill Nye, the science guy. Outside of Bill Nye, the science guy, obviously. Which, you know, already kind of puts Canada up at a one. So I gotta be honest, <laughs> you guys gotta start like, you know, coming up with some pretty cool stuff. Yes. So what are some of the differences do you feel? Like, let's just say generally the university education you receive um, in, you know, the Netherlands versus, you know, I guess we can talk about ours. Yeah. So, of course, it comes with a bit of a disclaimer that all we know about Canada or America or anything like that is really TV based also. So there will probably... <laughs> I assume all of you have like seven PhDs. Uh... Yes, exactly. And uh, you guys also have no work-life balance. That's that's what I know about <laughs> your side that's of the world. That's 100% fair. That's fair. <laughs> but uh, there will probably be some things that I think are different or we think that are different that are completely untrue. But from what I've heard, our science education might already, our university education might indeed already be a bit different. So we first have a bachelor's of three years and then a master of two years, but you don't already start your PhD or your career in those master times because it's really only internships, sometimes one, sometimes two of six months where you just help your PhD student that supervises you um, out in the lab and you learn uh, how to work in the lab and how to do things. So I think that's a bit different, right? Yeah, no, definitely. Like, so what you're saying, Suzanne, is that as a master's student, you're really just helping the PhDs. Like, you're not really kind of getting into your own project or your own well, research. A little bit, but it's not like you're going to publish that. If that happens, then you're very, 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 very lucky. Oh, so okay. you're usually just helping out with a project that's already ongoing or a side project of the PhD student that's just interesting to look at. But Yeah. So you're, you're just an RA. You're just like a research assistant then. Yes and no, but you know less. <laughs> you know less. Wait, are you getting paid while you're doing this? No, 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 no. Internships are, are free. Caveat, though, it does depend. So if you do your internship at a company, they, they do sort of pay you a little bit uh, for doing it there. But uh, That's in, really hard to get into. Yes, definitely. Yeah, but if you just fair. do it in the lab, no, you're free labor. Yes. <laughs> you know, as somebody coming to the end of her PhD, I'm thinking, man, would have been so nice to have a couple of masters to help me out. <laughs> like both of us, we're kind of like we're in the healthcare. I mean, not healthcare. We're in the health health field. Yeah. Health field um, but our research is outside of the lab, and so we're um, Yoa ran some experiments, and I just generally like talk to a bunch of people about their experiences, and so we didn't really like have an internship or a period of time where somebody was like, hey, you need to learn to do this the proper way. There's very specific skills that are associated with working in this environment. My, <laughs> me learning to interview people was like, well, your first two interviews are going to be garbage. So just <laughs> learn as you go. And they were, they were so bad. Oh, yeah, I have to say, I also now have, have a, um, a master student that I am supervising. And I, I have to say, I do take that very seriously because you, of course, are teaching somebody to be a PhD student at some point. And, uh, and I do take that very seriously because, I mean, you're responsible for educating a person to be ready for a PhD, basically. Mm -hmm. That's a lot because are you ever really ready for a PhD? Oh, God. No, definitely not. So, but then does your supervisor, like, is that less work for them to then quote-unquote, supervise the master's student? My PI, you mean, my professor. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, we have meetings with him uh, quite often, I have to say. He's quite an available professor, which is really nice. Um, but he doesn't help her out on a daily basis in the lab or anything. That's my job. But, of course, mm. we are very uh, very much like lab experiments based. So we're full-time busy in the lab with experiments, and she needs to learn how to how to do all of that. So that's basically my task. And right. uh, there is very little, well, research online or whatever, or at, at home. I think that's another thing that's very different between our experiences. I think that has more to do with our fields uh, than the kind of geographical difference. But um, it's, but it's very common for us to have meetings with our supervisor 
once every two weeks where we sit down and we will go, especially during like the dissertation writing process, I sit down with my supervisor at an entire committee and we go line by line, paragraph by paragraph, and we go through my manuscript and they kind of ask me about how I'm integrating particular theoretical models and um, how I'm planning to write this other chapter. And so it's a lot more hands-on and that's the level of hands-on I get. And my supervisor is actually super hands-off. Mm-hmm. Like that's the hands-off extent. And mm-hmm. yours was, I think, similar Yoa, right? Yeah, no, my supervisor very much. Even in my master's, like I got to do my own project and I got to pick my own project. And I remember, you know, starting out, I was like, oh, I want to do something to do with like sort of smoking cessation. And then literally halfway through my first year of my master's, I was like, no, actually, I want to do sedentary behavior. And I was just allowed to switch. And then, you know, I think it has its caveats too. Like on one hand, you get to, I think, really explore the research process on your own and kind of come to something um, just kind of like in your own self-guided learning experience. On the other hand, you're a master's student and you don't really know what you're doing. So like you kind of have to figure it out as you go too. My question for you though was, is there still a defense for the master's students to get their degree? Um, they have to write a thesis in mm. the end, but that's more like a literature review that they have to write. Wow, uh, okay. And then they, I don't think they even present that. They do have to have presentations for us, basically, in the lab. Yeah. But um, yeah, no, no real defenses, no. Wow, that's so interesting. That feels so much less stressful because yeah. on our end, we do, and I think now that the productivity requirements are kind of going up and up and up. It's not uncommon for master's students to publish two things from their master's thesis mm-hmm. and they have a defense. And again, but that's also because we're in health side. Yeah, it could be like, that too. What is the expectations for publications where you are? For the PhD? So during the master, we don't have any publications. I mean, you're lucky if you're somewhere on a paper, maybe. But wow. during the PhD, you have to have the rules just actually changed. You have to have two papers uh, out there already, like fully, fully um, yeah. published. But it's it's very different, I think, for doing the lab kind of research that we do, because we're often four years doing experiments just to publish one paper. That's very, very common. Yep. Yeah. yeah. And I don't know super a lot about your research. But are you working specifically with chemical stuff or do you ever work with like biological samples or animal models or anything yeah, like that? Definitely. You want to answer? Yeah, I can. Uh, so I have a mouse model, uh, but I also work with uh, cells as well. Right. Because I remember when the COVID pandemic started and I knew uh, some people who were doing pharmacological research and they were doing mouse models. And um, they had to cull all of their animals. <laughs> and uh, for our listeners, culling is a um, very sensitive word for murder. <laughs> <laughs> and and so and they had to get rid of all of their animals because campuses were cl- closing down, buildings were closing down. You couldn't go, like you couldn't maintain your animals anymore. Mm. Couldn't feed them. And so people's like you know a year two years of work was basically like gone because they were doing a lot of them were doing behavioral stuff so you needed to like train the animal and so i'm just wondering like how did the covid19 pandemic affect your research so we were allowed to finish the mouse studies that were already ongoing um but i think in the end we were six weeks or something at home in total give or take that yeah like full-time lockdown only at home uh, and then mm-hmm. after that, we were slowly allowed to work a little bit in the lab again, but like spread it out as much as possible over the hours in the day and work in the weekends and everything. But we really cannot do that much at home. There's there's not a lot you can do. You can take the mice home. <laughs> <laughs> Jerome, one, two, three, you're coming home with me. <laughs> not allowed to, according to the regulations. <laughs> Genetically modified mice are not allowed to go home. <laughs> <laughs> it's like it's like Jurassic Park, but like with mice. <laughs> They're like glowing in the dark for some reason. Huh. No, I would love to have glow in the dark pets though. <laughs> but that's a you can... Okay, maybe you can tell me what is it that you can do with bunnies that they become glow in the dark, or is that like an urban myth? I mean, it should be possible theoretically, yeah. but I've never seen it being done. I know they've done that with like zebrafish. Like yeah, but fish do it a lot. Or... Yeah. 
Yeah. Fish are the OGs. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I feel like we're getting a little bit off topic here. So, <laughs> mice aside, mice aside, um, what about stuff to do with like how you guys are treated as um, students? Like, are you. Are they hurting you? Like, <laughs> <laughs> twice for yes. <laughs> are you guys considered employees? Are you guys considered like just students? Or, like, how does that work? Uh, yeah, I can maybe take this one. So, we are just essentially employees we get paid and everything so that's nice uh, but for some things outside of the university we are technically still students for for example our housing that's very nice um, <laughs> so i can't complain about that uh yeah do you want to talk a little bit more about uh yeah yeah so we are official employees from the amsterdam university medical center so that's the hospital in amsterdam uh, but our phd is then organized via the university of amsterdam which is sometimes a bit weird uh, and our also PhD diploma will be via the University of Amsterdam. Um, but in the end, it doesn't matter so much because we are protected by the national, say, AO, it's called, for Dutch universities. Um, we found on Google that this is called a collective labor agreement. Oh, yeah. <laughs> in English. Union. <laughs> yes. Uh, so that sort of writes down what PhDers are supposed to make. Um, and that's quite universally agreed upon in the Netherlands that PhD students should be paid. I don't, I don't know any PhD students that get, pay, get paid less than that. Um, but there are quite some different CAOs out there. For, for example, by companies, it's a little bit different than for um, where we are at. Um, and I think the biggest difference really is that we are employees. So we also get the protections of employees, basically. A first year is a trial period. Then the PI can still fire you without consequence <laughs> but after that it becomes really a bit harder for him or her. Uh, and then they have to jump to some uh, administrative hoops to fire you yeah um, so they really gonna want to get you out of there <laughs> yeah <laughs> and then it's usually three or four years that your phd lasts and then at the end the contract just ends or you need an extension of course but we also get things like pregnancy leave and um Things like that that are, I think, think a lot less common in other parts of the world. Yeah. And is, is your employment contract tied to doing specific work outside of your quote-unquote PhD program, like TAing or... Mentoring know... students. Yeah. That's really, really quite different in different universities. So Jaron does have some, some teaching that he has to do, but only a couple of hours a year. Mm -hmm. Really not a lot. Um, yeah. And honestly, mentoring students like I'm doing, that's voluntary, basically. <laughs> I like doing that, so that's why I do it. But there are definitely also some universities that have a minimal required amount of teaching that you have to do, but it's definitely not not a lot. Yeah. Uh, for me specifically, I'm a shared PhD student between the Amsterdam uh, UMC, sorry, the, sorry, the uh, AMC and the VUMC, which is a, the other medical center in the Amsterdam. Uh, so because I'm shared between the medical biochemistry department and the physiology department, for the physiology department, I do have to help with teaching, but from the medical biochemistry department, not. So it's sort of awkward like that. But, but you right. don't really get paid for the teaching. No. It's just something that they ask you to do. Well, ask. Right. They sort of just tell me like, by the way, next month. <laughs> by the way, it's come to our attention that you have not done this yet. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's really interesting because the way we are definitely... Um, Although we technically sign an employment contract, uh, it is very much lip service. Uh, we are considered students and uh, we also have a union that protects us, but they don't do much. And you only get it if you TA. And so here's the crazy bit about Canada, at least, is that we have a union that protects students, quote unquote, um, but only if you're acting as a teaching assistant, which as part of your stipend, as part of your funding package, is mandatory. Um, is, is, that is guaranteed, I guess is the better word for it. It's guaranteed. Yes, they don't but have you, to pay you. They just yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, then, but then, like, it's kind of like this it's written into your contract. And so if you say, hey, I can't TA or I have to turn down this TA ship, they will take the money out of your guaranteed funding package. Mm -hmm right so guaranteed but it's also like very much mandatory if you want to make enough money to like live mm -hmm. and you also if you don't end up TAing, you also don't get to be part of the union either and so you're kind of just on your own in that regard and you know there's been a lot of instances that i've heard of um, and we've heard of where students who are kind of at the mercy of their pi and if their pi wants to like take advantage of them in terms of 
getting to do certain work or getting to work kind of irregular hours or even taking their intellectual property potentially um, if they want to like move it somewhere like we really don't have a lot of power in that regard and i think that that's a big difference yeah a lot of things like vacation time is not written into our contracts and so especially for uh students who are working with animal models and who are doing lab work um most of them don't get a christmas vacation and if you kind of have the least seniority like you're the one who's maintaining the animals during the christmas break while everybody else goes and like spends time with their families and our ta ships tend to vary drastically mm -hmm. so your ta ship could be like teaching a tutorial where you're just like helping people kind of for an hour to you know acquire the material better um, and then there's TA ships where the person teaching the course is like, sweet, I have a TA, you can teach the course. Yeah. <laughs> and so you're like in your master's and you have to do like four or five, six lectures on a material, on material that's like probably not aligning mm -hmm. with your research. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I have to say though, the power of PIs is also still quite strong um, here in the end when it comes to papers and authorships and like things, those, those struggles also still exist uh, mm -hmm. in the Netherlands uh, very much. And I mean, working off hours is also still the same. You don't get paid extra for the extra hours you make, but it's still very much expected without like anything basically. Right. And um, yeah, holidays are, are difficult <laughs> sometimes <laughs> when it comes to research and like planning that. Uh, but officially we do get 24 days a year. 24? I know, right? 20... Our, fac our faculty doesn't get that much. <laughs> our faculty doesn't get 24 days. Oh my goodness. <sighs> yeah, so I just want... <laughs> yeah, seriously, gotta go to the, gotta go to the Netherlands. Oh my god, that sounds, that sounds so good. A vacation? Yeah. Yeah, and so the 24 I... days is sort of in our contract, and uh, but we quite often have to work in the weekend, but then we're allowed to sort of, in theory, make that up by taking a day off on another day. Suzanne, I can't remember the last time I didn't work. Okay, I'll, 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 I'll tell you folks a story. When we got <laughs> married, I, I told my supervisor, I'm sorry, but I'm going to take three days off when we got married. There is a picture of us doing our like wedding photo shoot and I'm wearing my wedding dress. I'm in full makeup and I'm just responding to an email on my phone <laughs> and I was like yeah I have data I can actually respond to an email and that is the most like surreal thing I've yeah heard. it's very much academic thing I want to go back to something that you had said though because you had said that you know PIs have a lot of power in terms of authorship and whatnot and I know that it does obviously vary between supervisor to supervisor but at least in my experience Definitely. it has been that as the student, if you're doing the research, the experiment, whatever it is, and you're writing the paper, you are first author. Is that still the same way it is there? Yes, yes, yes. Okay, okay. Yeah, because I wasn't sure. I, I've also heard, you know, horror stories where the student does all the work, but the supervisor still ends up taking first authorship or co-first authorship. Oh, no, no, yeah. no, 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 no. Okay. Well, I mean, that's good. No, they, usually want, they usually want last author, so that's, that's usually fine. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I have to say, I, I have heard horror stories also about like people just putting a, put a second first while they did not really a lot for the paper mm -hmm. just because they need it. Or like, yeah, sometimes postdocs can, be, can also be difficult. Yeah, yeah, I see that. A seniority thing. I know that um, in some labs here, one of the more controversial things, I suppose, is that if you work in a lab where you work in a, a group that publishes a lot, everyone goes on every person's paper. And so it doesn't really matter the extent of the work that they've done. They just get that authorship because it's, you know, beneficial for their career. And like, as a supervisor, you're not really losing out because you're still in the paper. Your students are getting publications, which is making them more competitive for scholarships. It just feels like from an academic integrity sort of perspective, kind of dirty. Yeah, we don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> you guys are moral. But then I, I, it also very much depends on the group. Yes. Yeah. And I think the reason I kind of hate that, and I don't hate it, but I have very complicated feelings about it because I'm very much like, if you help me out on this paper, and that's kind of the thing that helped me get it over the finish line, like you're going on that paper. Like, I love you and I want to help you out. But at the same time, for my doctoral experience, we don't have a lab with critical qualitative researchers, generally speaking, even if a supervisor has multiple students, 
their work is so theoretically different that we normally are not on each other's papers. And it's very common um, in my field to have single author publications or at most three authors, but that's kind of journals are already like, hmm, this mm, is kind of fishy. Yeah, like how many, how many authors, what can they actually be doing? Yeah, know? yeah, exactly. And so I feel like there's this entire opportunity that like I got cheated out of mm -hmm. uh, just based on um, the field that I, that I ended up in. But at the same time, I'm in health science. And so I'm held to the same standards of publishing as other health science students. Uh, the struggles, I guess we could say. The struggles. The struggles. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I think for us, we usually have a lot of names on the papers. Mm. Uh, sometimes just one experiment that somebody did and that already makes them like enough to go on the paper. Um, but I have to say also our group is very different because we work together like every day. And we see each other every day and we're real colleagues. So, for example, if I would take the example of uh, the wedding, my group would be at my wedding <laughs> because I love them. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I hope that my PI then doesn't email me when he's at my wedding drinking. So, <laughs> I wouldn't <laughs> no, exactly. This is the rosé you went with? <laughs> or it's just like he's got like cages and it's like, all right. Really now. <laughs> okay. In 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 our defense, we got married during COVID, so our capacity was ten people. Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah so yeah, we yeah. had literally photographer and like family. Yeah, our family. The like the bare bones of the family. <laughs> I can't imagine that. Yes. Yeah. yeah. One of the things I think just going back a bit to when we were talking about, you know, work expectations and hours and whatnot, I think one of the big questions that I'm sure a lot of people are wondering is What's the difference in pay between, you know, where you guys are and where we're at for the same degree? Yes. We calculated it. <laughs> <laughs> like in they did math. They're, they're STEM, so they would be better at this than us. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> no promises, no promises. We had to we had to recalculate it to Canadian dollars, too. I mean. <laughs> yeah, Jaron. Yeah, okay, sure. Um, so, let's see here. Basically, what it would, we start out with about, 34,000 euros per year uh, as sort of first year PhD students. And that should be, if our calculations are correct, 49,000 Canadian dollars. What the oh. heck? <laughs> yes. And that slowly goes up during your PhD period of usually four years. And it goes up to 43,000 euros yes. or 62,000 Canadian dollars. Okay. To, to, oh. give, you, to give you a benchmark. Um, so... That's more money than I make now our, as a postdoc. <laughs> no, no, no. But our <laughs> most competitive postdoctoral fellowship in the country, we're talking about like top like half a percent, sure. like like is basically the same amount after tax. Yeah. It's it's the same amount. It's 70. Uh, but this is before this, this is, is before tax. Taxes. So taxes still okay. need to go okay. off. Okay, but that. even so, like like the, the standard sort of, I don't think you want to say standard, but a very competitive national scholarship for us is still you know easily 40. 15 20 grand less than yeah. what you guys make in your yeah, yeah. Year. our doctoral um stipend is my guaranteed stipend is twenty thousand dollars canadian yeah. and it, does, it doesn't go up oh and if you get a scholarship by the way if you get a scholarship it does go up but not by the amount of the scholarship so for example if you get a fifteen thousand dollar scholarship and you're making twenty thousand dollars you're like oh, okay sweet 35k except the university is like, oh, wow, good job. You did it. So I start clapping, give you a pat on the back. And then as they give you a pat on the back, they take away $8,000 from your pocket. And so, like, so you don't need this anymore. Yeah, so a $15,000 scholarship is actually worth only $7,500. Yeah. And then if you are fortunate enough to get a national scholarship, which, again, is incredibly competitive. Super competitive. Like two people from the university get it every year. Well, the two people from your department in the university get it. Well, your faculty. Your faculty. Yeah. your faculty um then they take all of your funding away and that scholarship is thirty-five thousand dollars canadian yeah. and they just take your funding away so you're like i worked so hard yeah. to get this money and i only yeah. increased my income by 15 grand and plus because you're no longer working as part of the union because you don't longer ta because you take away all your funding you don't get the benefits of being in the union either and so it's like this weird thing where it's like yes we want our best and brightest to like apply for these scholarships and get them but also when they do they're going to lose out on some health insurance and benefits and also yeah. they're not going to get the opportunity to 
do these professional development through like TAing and through, you know. Oh. It's it's kind of yeah, it's kind of crummy that way, which is ultimately ironic considering that Canada actually pays faculty one of the best rates in the world. I think that's why they pay faculty <laughs> one of the best rates. No, that... I think our middle management is just so bloated that people just get paid a bunch, yeah. Yeah, so I have to say though RPI have to pay the AMC basically twice as much a month to have us because there goes a lot into like insurances and things like that. So it is quite expensive for RPI to have PhD students. So that makes it a bit more difficult, I guess, because our grants are also usually not as large as they are mm. in a, well, what we hear like America and like where uh, like things like that. So I, I'm not sure if it's, I mean, I really like getting paid, but it also <laughs> is about to I'm going to be clear. I love getting paid. I love money. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so Suzanne, in your opinion, then, is it harder to get into a PhD program, or is it is it very difficult from a master's to get into a PhD program? Well, you have to apply. So usually, the PI already has a grant. You can write your own grants, but those are very, very few and far between. Mm-hmm. Um, so usually, the PI already has the grant. They can hire a PhD student for that, and then you just go to job interviews, and the PI chooses whoever they like best. Wow. So. That's, I think, very different. And I mean, I struggled with that quite quite a while. I was, uh, uh, I think, quite almost a year, I think, interviewing before I got the position that I'm at now. I'm really gra- glad that I got this one and not some of the other ones. But <laughs> <laughs> after hearing the stories from those PhD students that were hired there. <laughs> I hear some confessions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. So it's really more of a job interview and then you're applying and you're you're looking at all these um, facultures. How do you call that in English? Vacancies. Vacancies. And seeing which research you like, but you don't get to decide what you work on really because you're working on a project of your PI. So you're just applying for that project that they got the grant on or that they like mm. to do. So it's a bit less that you are working on your own thing maybe, but then during the four years, you, you don't only work on one thing. So you, sometimes you can mm-hmm. sort of spread out a bit right right i think about that a lot actually again like my masters i had a lot of liberty in what i could choose and it was really up to me to come up with a research program and what i wanted my next you know four years to look like and at the same time uh, you know on and i both have gotten to be on so many sort of interdisciplinary projects that admittedly we've like found for ourselves but we were you know we had the time and the opportunity to do so and I wonder too, like, on one hand, we don't get paid for that stuff, right? Like, we're, we're basically just mm-hmm. freelancing for all these different people for free. But on the other hand, like, it looks good to be able to do that much kind of interdisciplinary work, to network like that. Um, and so I guess there are pros and cons that way. Yeah, we, I think during my PhD, I probably collaborated with like five or six faculty members on various projects and got to do like, learn different methodologies mm-hmm. and get introduced to different uh, fields. But in terms of, I think, what the expectation was for my research during my doctorate was that I just work on my project. Mm-hmm. And I think I was a little bit different because I came in and I knew off the bat what my project was going to be, what the methodology was going to be. I was, I like, in my head, I had a proposal. Like, I knew exactly um, what was going to happen. And I think, like, during the first year of a PhD, most people have a general idea and they kind of use that year to really refine that idea and decide on a methodology and decide on um, a population so my experience was slightly different yeah that being said though there are definitely people that we know that have been like are in the sixth and seventh year of their phd and so like i think there's an extreme that you can take that to where you know i think you have a friend who's in her third year now or fourth year and she still hasn't done comps do you guys have comps or candidacy exams Nope. nope. No? Okay. You guys don't get to be called PhD seeds? No. No. Nope. no. <laughs> yeah. Oh. I have no clue what it is. <laughs> so that's actually, and I will confirm, there are also fields in Canada that don't have candidacy exams, oh, okay. and most STEM fields don't have it. Oh. Because I think the assumption is if you didn't know what you were doing, you'd get fired by this point. <laughs> <laughs> so essentially, a candidacy exam or a comprehensive exam is usually done in your second year or before your second year and essentially involves you having, um, demonstrating that you have the background within your proposed field of research that you can continue. And so usually how it works, for me anyway, was I picked a topic, a research topic, and there were sort of 
three major pillars of knowledge to this topic. And then I would go in and I would, um, I got to pick my readings, but some people don't get to pick their readings. And so you have all these readings for these different pillars and you have to, you have a month or so to basically like know them inside out. And so then when the day comes of your comprehensive exam, you first have a written exam where you have basically five or six hours, you're put in a room and you just write about these, like your, your committee comes up with these questions. And so you write about these questions. Usually there's six, you pick three, you write about them. And then if you pass that, which I think is like a 70, then you go down to your oral comprehensive, which is where they, your panel interviews you and they're like, okay, they'll usually ask you the other three questions you didn't answer. And then essentially that's supposed to demonstrate to them uh, and to your supervisor that you have enough knowledge to kind of stay in the program. It is the case that if you don't pass, oftentimes you're given, you know, kind of a makeup or something you can do, but if you don't pass and you really don't pass, you actually don't get to continue your PhD. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so that's kind of a big difference, I think. Which is funny because my experience was like, here, write these two papers and then go through a defense. And so like, it was super funny because I defended my master's late. Like I was already in my doctoral program by the time I got to defending my master's. And then not six months later, I had to defend, defend my candidacy, which was <laughs> in volume writing another master's thesis and going through like a very yeah. similar defense process. And I was like, by the time I get to my doctoral defense, I'm going to walk like waltz in there and be like, I'm done. I don't care. <laughs> I'm just going to be swearing during the presentation. <laughs> wow. Yeah, that's pretty different. We just have the defense at the end of the four. Well, four is usually way longer than that. <laughs> okay. Good. <laughs> good to know. <laughs> it, it, and for us also, our research, we do tend to set up collaborations but it always is very dependent on where our experiments go because you might start in a project and try to find what a, what a specific protein does but then if it ends up to being something with lipids then you do lipids and if it ends up something, <laughs> something else then you do that so yeah so i think that actually leads me into my like next question which is if you're being given kind of a, a really narrow or more limited topic of what you actually are going to be researching what do your job opportunities look like after grad school like do you tend to stick with the thing you were studying do you get a bit more liberty and like okay now i want to try and study something else somewhere else industry academia like how does that look so i i mostly know people who finished their phds and immediately went to postdocs mm -hmm. um specifically at our department so for example there's someone who switched from essentially dermatology now to medical biochemistry so very that, different. Yeah. Very different. So, um, yeah, it really just depends. You can sort of pivot quite a bit, uh, at least in terms of academia, to what your postdoc position is, mostly because there aren't that many postdoc positions, I guess, uh, even depending on how specialized you are, of course. Um, so oftentimes you might have to pivot. And I think Suzanne also saw some postdoc presentations where, like, they have nothing to do with our field, but they're one of the best candidates. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fair enough. And for, I think for switching to a company, it's way more about the things you've learned, like the skills and not necessarily about what your topic of research was. So it's way more important that you have project management skills and that mm -hmm. you can hold presentations and that you can sell yourself than, than really that you were working on cholesterol. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's really interesting because, uh, at least over here, even as I was doing my PhD, my supervisor and a lot of my colleagues, including Yoa, um, were telling me, well, what you research in your PhD is going to be the thing that you build your entire career on. You might deviate from that topic later on in your career, but this is going to be your thing. You are the expert. And now that I'm getting to the end of my PhD, I see postdocs that have gone from like, childhood physical activity to geography yeah. like yeah. from their doctorate to their postdoc and i i think for us like that idea that you become an expert in this like really small sliver of academic knowledge and you stick to it i think it's fading yeah interdisciplinary yeah. interdisciplinary research is becoming the new hot thing it's so hot right now so hot right now so hot right now <laughs> um and so i think there's similarly um to how industry functions i think there's a lot more emphasis on the skills yeah like definitely. what transferable skills did you 
get from your PhD. And I'm so grateful for that because I don't want to do my research topic anymore. <laughs> yeah, I mean, my opinion on this has changed dramatically as well. Like, I think now not just having the multidisciplinary sort of knowledge, but also the skills that come with that and the network that comes with that, right? Like universities, when they're looking for faculty positions, at least in Canada, where we've been looking, it's like, we don't just want you to know this one thing. It's like expertise in this and this and this and these methodologies and be able to teach these courses. And like, I don't think that that's necessarily possible or it's gonna be a lot harder if you just take a very narrow lens to you know your PhD research and then your postdoc, right? And so uh, I really do think that there's this shift that's happening, at least in you know Canadian academia, where we're moving away from people being these really strong, solid experts in one particular thing, like a super, super niche field, and instead mm -hmm. being like, well, people need to be able to know their stuff, but also collaborate and see how that fits in the larger sort of jigsaw of, of the field. Yeah, I think honestly, for, for the postdocs that I've seen come by in our group and where we're applying, you don't even have to really know the subject yet. You just need to show that you are a researcher, you have some skills in the lab, because of course it's a very, very hands-off, uh, hands-on thing, yeah. right? You you need to have actual, need to be handy, basically. If you have two left hands, don't, yeah. don't come to the lab. That's, don't that's drop the clothes. Do you guys know what the Red Dream Show is? No. Okay, it's a Canadian show. It's like, it's so, it's a Canadian classic, but basically there's this one line in it. It's like, if the women don't find you handsome, they should at least find you handy. And so, <laughs> Yo, but I was laughing because I'm like, that is the best job posting on like, indeed, must be kind of a scientist, <laughs> must have some skills, must be handy. <laughs> You're like, you want a postdoc, you want someone to fix your plumbing. Uh, yeah, but sometimes you also see these people come by for a job interview and then they, they, so bad <laughs> really what makes someone a bad scientist in your mind well you shouldn't start explaining like the most basic procedure that we have in the lab like you just discovered the next big thing you know <laughs> and then that's the entire thing that you did during your internship you sequenced something i mean <laughs> Yeah, I still remember a presentation at a certain point where it's like, yes, this is called a volcano plot because it looks like a volcano. It's like, ha. Oh, <laughs> Groundbreaking. <laughs> yes, yes, that, that's the kind of people you get sometimes. Yeah, 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 fair that's enough. Amazing. So what's the plan for you guys? Like, you're coming to the end of your PhDs now, and is industry the goal? Is academia the goal? Like, how realistic are both? Uh, I want to get out of academia relatively quickly. Yeah, we established that early on. <laughs> Suzanne really liked it so much that we did an entire episode about it. Yeah, I really love the PhD. Yeah, I, I am still thinking about doing at least a postdoc. Yeah. So Suzanne, what is it going to take for you to be competitive for academia in the Netherlands or in Europe? Uh, well, if you actually want to become a PI, which is really not very easy, it's really, really difficult. It takes a lot. You, you have to have uh, high impact papers. You need to do things outside of your research, like be interested in scientific outreach, that kind of thing, or organizing things. You just, you need to be in the top 10%. Um, and that's really quite hard. I'm not really sure if I'm interested in that whole track, basically. Mm -hmm. So, um, What's the alternative then? Uh, well, switch to, uh, to, uh, to uh, a company or something like yeah. that. When we also have some postdocs that are planning on staying postdocs forever. Oh no. I mean, actually, okay, hold on. How much do postdocs get paid <laughs> where you are? Well, it's one step <laughs> higher than the PhD. So it's again, like it goes up every year. Oh man, I should have done my postdoc in Europe. I know. Let's just... ship the dogs over. <laughs> you get 24 vacations day a year. <laughs> what? I think that's like mat leave for some people. Yeah, I know. If you're Also, I will, I will mention this because we mentioned it a couple times, but I, I won't clarify. Canada is very different than the States, like, mm. like tremendously different. Like I would say it would be like saying like, oh yeah, Morocco is really close to like Italy. They're kind of like the same thing, right? It's like, it's very different. Um, and so we're like way more chill, <laughs> but even within the States, I think because they have private post-secondary institutions versus in Canada, I, I'm pretty sure they're all public, yeah. or at least for the most part, the major ones are all public. And so because of that, I think our model for funding is very different than in the States for both PIs and students. Wait, 
I think that was a complete lie. I think all of ours are private. Our colleges are public. Oh, right, right, right. Yeah, but we're like, completely but, lying. No, but we're, we're, they're partially publicly funded. Eh, whatever. Yeah, no, they are. If you're U of T. Yeah, because the government sends, like, gives scholarships and stuff, and they also... To individuals, have... not institutions. But... anyway anyway obviously we don't know anything about this (laughs) yes i have to say also if you wanna if you wanna become a professor or a pi it is highly recommended to go abroad and for example going to america or Mm. like really really the other side of the world is quite um looked upon quite highly i guess yeah that you have been also been able to survive in that environment i guess (laughs) (laughs) so what is it about america that's so appealing because we live near the border and it's not it so look good. yeah i would not <laughs> it doesn't look good me with binoculars yeah still looks like a dumpster fire yeah, it also doesn't look good from this side i have to tell you <laughs> okay, okay, okay. <laughs> the thing is that there's just a lot more money for research and that the research that's being done there is just a bit more high impact because there's more money right i think so i've been told about this and i haven't experienced myself so i can't speak how true this totally is but for a lot of really research heavy institutions in the states there is a lot of money but a lot of insecurity as well because your salary is based on whether you can get these grants get these you know these these really big things and if you can't you're essentially not making any money and so your research suffers your students suffer things like that so i think it's high risk high reward yeah 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 for us i think the professors are when you become a professor you are an official like permanent picture tenure track mm-hmm. um but if you don't get the grants you don't have people and the people are also not working for free here so you just don't have people so we have for example a couple of people who are uh scientists with a permanent permanent um contract contract and they don't have a group anymore so they just they just right now but it's so sad <laughs> so you have to when you want to hire somebody you need to already sort of have the money for the four years otherwise you cannot hire somebody or we just right. keep grabbing master students in six months. <laughs> later. The Ponzi scheme continues. Well, I thought that's what they did throw... in Canada. I mean, <laughs> yeah. throwing bodies on the machine, like something will stick. Yeah, yeah. There's still a lot of pressure to get the grants and to to get the money because otherwise you don't have a group. Yeah, makes sense. Well, I don't know. How are you guys with um, student loans? Oh, yeah. uh, oh student loans. Um, it varies by province. And so we have, so for example, when my loans are from Ontario and they accumulated during my undergraduate studies. And so during my master's and my PhD, I didn't need to uh, take out loans and they're just kind of sitting there. Um, and they're sitting there waiting Waiting for forgiveness. They're waiting for me to finish my studies. And then I'll have like a six month kind of buffer period where I can ask them, like, please don't collect interest. And then I have to start paying it back. But it's not like American loans where they will like garnish your wages. Yeah. So my loans are kind of hefty, but my payment a month is we say hefty but at the same time like not like not, american hefty. no like we're not talking like six figures like that's ridiculous no 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 no, no. yeah exactly yeah. Like, this is not the super uh, sized loan <laughs> yeah <laughs> super sized loan yeah no it's a very reasonable loan um and my payments per month will be something that i can handle in a postdoc salary mm-hmm. um and if i want to i can obviously pay more and sometimes usually when some government gets reelected or elected for the first time yeah. they'll forgive a chunk of it and that happened once and i'm waiting for it to happen again <laughs> <laughs> right oh that's nice it's not that different then our loans are also by the government and we do have to pay it back because we are officially employees now but sort of kind of students it's it's still a very weird system oh but... so you have to pay it back like in your PhD. yes but it is oh. income dependent so they always calculate a certain percentage of your income and yeah. if you are after 30 years you're we're not able to pay it all back it it just goes away interesting that's amazing years, yeah. so just be a bum for 30 years <laughs> <laughs> you don't you don't even have to try and be a bum you're just a phd grad okay like do you know what the job market looks like 30 years we later get we get paid don't worry <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah no. fun fact i was actually looking at the university of amsterdam for postdoctoral fellowships oh. because you folks have a lab that uh does app studies 
and it's a collaborative lab with uh, researchers from all over the world, some from University of Toronto, actually. And yeah, I was seriously looking to like go there for my postdoc. Oh, is someone going to learn Dutch? Do you guys like do everything in Dutch? Uh, depends where you are, especially in Amsterdam. If I go to a shop in the middle of Amsterdam, I have to speak English because people don't speak uh, Dutch there. Wow, so we, wow. We are so international that we cannot even speak our own language in yep. like social stores. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds perfect for me. <laughs> yes. Okay. And I can I really can't. recommend the Netherlands. It's a lot of fun. And especially Amsterdam because there are so many people from all around the world. Yes. And, so uh, many drugs. <laughs> just... Oh my god. <laughs> Focusing on the wrong no, things. No, no. <laughs> no, but like, isn't it true though that you are very liberal with your drug policies? Wheat, yes. There's just a nod. Correct, come on over. That's right. <laughs> yeah, with wheat, with wheat you can just buy it legally, and with everything else, you're allowed to have a certain amount that's not for sale. Hmm. So. It's actually so we got there with weed mm-hmm. and uh Toronto has actually it's on the municipal level so my home city uh you're a, not going to be charged with possession anymore oh really yeah unless it's like meth or heroin at that point they're just like yeah. come on but like some magic mushrooms they're chill they're like hey just don't There's share all mushrooms man i know that's mushroom. what i'm saying <laughs> yeah yeah we can also buy mushrooms legally i think right i have no clue i don't do drugs in case your supervisor's listening, like, okay, we got you, we got you. Because <laughs> uh, I actually heard that, like, okay, I'll stop talking. <laughs> <laughs> gonna, this is another episode that we can do, okay? <laughs> Help Anna get drugs in Europe. <laughs> well, Europe is quite difficult, but Netherlands, that's possible. I have to say also, uh, for the PhD, back to the actual topic, um, Doing a PhD in other in different countries is very 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 different. So we can only speak for the Netherlands, of course. In uh, in uh, I know a friend who did it in um, Scotland and Edinburgh, and she had the same thing that she only gets paid a certain amount that's allocated by her grant, and she had to do uh, courses and everything that we don't have to do. So it's very very different in different countries. Mm-hmm. Definitely, yeah. Overall, it sounds like doing a PhD in both Canada and Europe both have their advantages and disadvantages. But guys, after this conversation, which one would you say is better, though? <laughs> it says you're Canada. <laughs> ah, see, I wrote in the script that they have to say Canada. <laughs> it's because they don't have Bill Nye the Science Guy. That's exactly what it is. That's that's the thing that pushes it. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Okay. I will give you that. I will give you. I will give you that. <laughs> You've been listening to Grad School Confessional. I'm Dr. Yoasway. Special thanks again to my co-host Anna and our guest host Susanna Jarrett. Guys, as we end our research papers, do you have any final acknowledgements or conflicts of interest you would like to disclose today? <laughs> oh, sure. yes. We would definitely uh, like to thank our biggest supporter, our dog, Buddha. <laughs> Aww, his name is Buddha. If you enjoyed the show, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or iTunes so that others can benefit from our mediocre advice. Please also share us with your social network and follow us on Twitter at GSConfessional, as well as check out the Struggling Scientist podcast and following them on Twitter at the struggling S4. And if you have a confession you'd like to make, please use the anonymous link in the description or email thegradschoolconfessional at gmail.com. We're waiting for your funny, interesting, or controversial confessions. Until next time, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Principal Investigator, Amen. <laughs>